You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I chat with Vince Rodriguez about investing in tenant-friendly and expensive states, the harsh reality of trying to time the real estate market, and how to raise money for your real estate deals. Vince is a mechanical engineer holding various patents and is a successful real estate investor. I get asked a lot about how to invest in expensive states as well as tenant-friendly states. A lot of people say that it's not possible, but Vince debunks both of those myths in today's episode. He also explains the harsh reality of why you can't and shouldn't try to time the real estate market. So without further delay, let's get right into this week's episode with Vince Rodriguez. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard, and with me today, I have a listener of the show. Vince, welcome to the show. Hey, Robert, thanks for having me, man. This is super exciting for me. Before we get into your real estate deals, tell us a bit about yourself. So, I'm a immigrant from uh, South India. I came here in 2008 to do my engineering. So I have a master's in mechanical engineering. Also happen to have an MBA, but I work in the medical device industry as a scientist, mainly focusing on intellectual property and coming up with new technologies that we could use in the medical field. How'd you get into real estate? Probably 90% of you guys you have on here, it's by reading Rich Dad Poor Dad in 2018. And I got immediately depressed for six months. I was like, oh my God, I wasted my whole life just doing engineering stuff. That's how I got into it. After you read that book, what was the first thing you did? It sounds like you went into a little period where you felt bad for yourself. And I think that's probably common for some people. But after that, what was the first thing you did? What did you really take away from that book that you took action on? Yeah. So how I actually read that book was one of my best friends, the way he actually showed me that book. He's like, dude, you got to read it. You got to read it. And I spent two years not reading it. And then eventually I decided I'll do the audiobook. And then I was like, oh, wow, this is bad. Like the whole thing is a scam, you know, <laughs> all my engineering, everything. It's you don't really make any wealth generation. So what I did was I immediately started, got on to bigger pockets and I became a pro member and started analyzing deals. It took me about six months from the first day I read the book to actually get a triplex in my name. I like that your friend did that because I've actually done that. I have a couple close friends, maybe three or four, and my brother that a couple years ago, I think for Christmas, I sent them all a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I've done that for a few of them every year since then. I've sent them various different books. I just buy them on Amazon and have them ship right to their house. It's so crazy that one book could have such a meaningful difference in your life. It's funny that you didn't read it for a while because I know specifically one of my friends, he didn't read it for a while and then maybe a year, year and a half, two years later, he sent me a photo of him reading it. And he had a bunch of highlights in it. And it was a little bit delayed, but I was so happy to see that he was actually at least reading it. And I know for him, it's made a big impact and he's already changed his life a bunch. So I like this idea of giving books as gifts. I really like that idea. Yeah. Is that how you got into it too, Robert? So I actually got into it by accident. I bought a condo out of college because everybody told me that I couldn't. And so I decided I wanted to prove them wrong. And so I bought a condo uh, while I was a senior in college. I worked 
almost full time throughout college to save up enough money. And I bought the condo before I walked at my college graduation. It was two bedrooms. And so I lived in one of the bedrooms and I rented out the other bedroom. And basically, I was living very close to free, a couple hundred bucks a month. And I realized that this was an investing strategy. And I figured, you know, somebody else must have been doing this. And similar to you, that's when I found bigger pockets and just the rest is history from there. Oh, so you just house hacked by accident? You didn't even know about it? I had no idea. So I bought the house. I lived there for a little while. And I realized that I had this second bedroom that I had never even opened the door. And I think I'd lived there for a couple months. And I said, well, I should probably do something with this. And I ended up renting it out for like $700, $750 a month. And the mortgage was, or all in was about 1000 or 1100 So I was living for like $300 a month. And I realized I'm not that smart. So somebody else must have done this before me. And so I started to research it and I realized, wow, this is actually an investing strategy. And so, wow, I guess I can be an investor. And that broke down all of my limiting beliefs. And that's what got me into real estate. Wow, that's fascinating to see that you kind of figured out the strategies by yourself. Yeah, I just got lucky, I guess. But I know your first deal that you did alone wasn't quite as successful maybe as mine. I know it was a bit of a nightmare. And I want to get into the details of that. But before we do, did you start out alone or did you start doing deals with your business partner, Drew, first? So we actually started doing it together. The title and stuff is in my name for that one. I do it strategically so that not a lot of loans or different people's names. So I try to keep them out. But yeah, so we did it together the first deal. So did you start with Drew first or did you do your own first? I started with Drew. So we are business partners on all the deals. And even this one you did alone? Yeah. So this one, what happened was we talked about doing this deal together. And so I read like a lot of books. I became super obsessed with it. And I thought I'm a genius. I know everything about everything. right? But I totally forgot about the people aspect of the business. I completely faced out about it. right? When we bought this deal together, what happened was there were squatters. Nobody was paying rent. They were literally cooking meth and like doing drugs in the house. I was like, oh, this is not good. So what happened was a lot of months, nobody was paying rent, right? So I had to figure it out. People were stealing from us. They were using electricity from one unit to the other. It was just like a super nightmare. And at the same time, Drew, my buddy, he's a guitar instructor in Orange County. So we live in Orange County. So he decided to open up a brick and mortar store at the same time. So we didn't know what to do because that situation was really bad because we had to do this business. And we were thinking of just walking away. We were like, dude, this is too much. We don't make that much money. Make this amount, but I'm funneling this. So I told Drew, okay, so you should go ahead and just work on your business because he's just starting. There's a lot of work to do. He used to go to uh, people's houses and teach guitar. And eventually he started a store, literally, like you could go there and take music lessons. I just told him he can concentrate on that aspect of the business. So I was kind of managing all of the stuff in the deal at the few months. So that's why I meant like more like by myself in the beginning. So I had to kick out all the people. I had to evict them. I had to manage the contractors who were stealing from me from my credit card, not doing any work. I was paying people by the hour, all terrible mistakes. Instead of the job, I spent more than $10,000 to fix a tub in a toilet in a restroom. It's like cost maybe like $1,500 to do it. But you know, the guy would be like, oh, I'm painting today. It's like I'm paying for a week. So now I'm paying a week's labor, 20 bucks an hour for a week. And I see it's like not done. So a lot of things I learned on this first deal, but the most important thing is we decided not to 
sell the property, we decided to kind of go through it. So I was able to finally kick everybody out, evict them. And I found a great management team, all that stuff. Two property managers quit on us. They literally called me and said, you know what? We can't do this. I know this is our job. And they just quit. <laughs> That's how bad this property was. Did they not want to manage that specific property because of the tenants? Yeah. They were just not capable of that. So finally, I used to look a company called Real Property Management. They're the biggest franchise in the US. So I kind of didn't want to use them in the beginning because they were expensive. They were 10% and you know all that, like, oh, we charge so much. So I kind of went for like the cheaper property management and they didn't know what to do. They left by themselves. Then I went back to the property manager, the initial one, which I knew was good. So they manage all my units now. You mentioned that you were going to get out of the deal or you thought about it. And that's one of the things I like about real estate is that you have so many exit strategies. Even if something goes wrong, you at least could get out of it. What was your plan in terms of getting out of that deal? How were you going to get out of it? Were you just going to sell it? We thought for a hot second, should we just sell this and call it a day and you know maybe start over again? Yeah, that was the strategy, but we would have lost a lot of money because the guy wanted $296,000 for this little triplex and it appraised for two thirty seven. So I said, hell no, I'm not buying this. So I bought the price down to two sixty five, and then I got a $9,000 credit kind of. So I kind of bought it for like $256,000, right? But still, I'm kind of buying it underwater. It's only worth two thirty seven. dollars I bought it for two fifty six, dollars and I spent easily over $50,000 on this property. So if I sold it, I would have lost $50,000 plus the closing cost. That would have been good. So I figured in my head, there is no way I'm going to lose this much money if I keep it. I could easily rent this out for $2,700 a month. So by that time, I was able to kick one guy out and one unit was paying rent. So about $900 was coming in. So it was like, okay, I could see the money coming in in the bank. So then after six months, I was able to kick everybody out and everybody were paying rent. So then it was making money. Why did you decide to move forward buying a property for more than what it appraised for? I wanted to get into the game. So I was looking around for a little bit and I wasn't making moves. And I did the 1% rule and stuff. I'm super nerdy with math and everything. So I'm an engineer, right? So I do all the math and I was like, this makes sense even at like 250 because I could easily get $2,700 for rent on a worst case scenario. And I just decided, yeah, I mean, how long are we going to kind of like wait around. I always figured that if you got into it, you know, you can increase the range slowly and all that stuff. That's interesting because I have the philosophy that the asking price doesn't matter. A lot of people have this bias where if they buy a property for under asking, they think they got a good deal. And if they pay over asking, then they got a bad deal. I don't necessarily think that's true. I think it depends on the numbers. I'm not an engineer. I'm an accountant, but I'm a numbers guy just like you. So just for easy numbers, asking 100,000, but you know it'll work for you at 120,000. Why wouldn't you buy it for 120,000 if the numbers still make sense? Just because you paid more than asking doesn't mean you didn't get a good deal. And you could buy, say, that same property for 80,000, but it's not even worth that because the numbers don't even make sense. So maybe you would have had to pay 60,000 and you still got it under asking and you think you got a good deal, but the numbers don't make sense. So for me, it's more about the numbers making sense rather than it is getting it above or under asking. Although, the caveat is for me, it's about the asking price, not necessarily the appraised value. I don't know if I could buy a property personally for more than the appraised value. Yeah, that is the one caveat, right? It did help me to reduce the price by $50,000 almost with the low appraisal coming in. But I still had to go 20000 out of pocket extra, right? Because the bank won't cover the loan. 
That was exactly what I was going to ask is usually the loan is 20% down or 15 to 25% down on the appraised value or purchase price, whichever is less. And since your appraised value is less than the purchase price, you had to come up with the difference and the 20% down payment. Is that correct? Yeah, exactly. How did you and Drew meet and get aligned on being real estate investing partners? So I met Drew at a conference in LA a long time ago. A long time ago, we met kind of like a networking meetup in LA. It was a long time ago. And I was asking a question to the guy who was running it. And Drew was just sitting behind me. He's like tapping on the soldier's shoulder and said, hey, I'm from Huntington Beach. Too. We used to live in Huntington Beach. I looked at him. I was like, dude, I've never seen this blonde guy again in my life. And then we did hang out. We were texting and we started hanging out in Huntington Beach. And then it took a while, you know, I'll just hang out in the circles of his friends and my friends. And one day we were just like, I think we should get into real estate, like for real, because all these guys are not doing anything with their lives. And he was like, yeah, let's do it. But I was like, no, no, like, seriously, like we should go buy a house together. And he was like, okay, let's actually buy a house. So we're like, are you serious? And then we were like, just figured out like, we should just do it. Now we have a lot of houses together. Did each of you bring different strengths to the partnership? Did you have certain skills that he didn't have and you guys complemented each other well? Or were you just wanted to partner together? So you just decided to work together? Well, so... No, we became good friends initially, right? So we have a good friendship between us. So that's definitely, I would say, number one, right? If you don't like the person you're working with, it doesn't matter what business training or what skills they have. If you don't like working, like if I don't like working with you, I'm not going to work with you. I don't care, right? So we like each other. So it was like an aspect of the relationship was good. But yes, he does bring a totally different skill set that I don't have. He has his own business or he has a music school. So he's like an entrepreneur. And me, on the other hand, I uh, work in the engineering field for a medical device company in Orange County. So I'm super nerdy on numbers and I'm very obsessive about it. I like the Grand Cardone style of teaching. I do not like Dave Ramsey at all, like not even 1%. So I'm like very different. So I'm very like aggressive in terms of like networking or talking to people, raising money, those kind of things. And he kind of knows how to run like social media and like putting like good posts and kind of like how to run a business uh, implement like different systems systems in place you know that's like have a script for calling and all those things that's him but he kind of comes in on high level strategy but i kind of do the business as in uh, running the numbers of finding the deals and stuff let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors hey everyone it's patrick your host of millennial investing Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant 
now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Maker do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Maker is 100% free. Ask Maker questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. Are you still working your W-2 job today? Yes. I have to start working at 8 a.m. <laughs> so how does you having a W-2 job help you with financing? I'm guessing because he's a business owner, he probably doesn't have W-2 income, which makes it more difficult to get financing. And you being a W-2 employee, you guys could probably rely on you and your W-2 income to help you get good financing. Have you guys pursued that? And has that been helpful for you? Yes, you're right. So W-2, as you know, underwriters, Fannie Freddie guidelines, they love W-2. However, let's say I make $100,000. I already have a lot of houses. Like I'm already screwed with DTI, right? So it doesn't really help me anymore. Now they're like, what is your dog's last name? Does your dog have a school? We want to see the tax return of your cat. Like it's just ridiculous. Like how many different things you have to jump through. And for the 1099, you're absolutely right. They do prefer us more like W-2s. However, he's had his business for a decade. So if you have two years of tax returns, and if he shows a net profit of like, let's say 80,000 or 100,000, they will take that income. They will say, okay, that's fine. I know a lot of the asset protection uh, tax strategies, how to uh, structure your deals and business entities and stuff, how they work. I have like a pretty deep understanding of those things. So I set him up with like an S corporation and he has like a small salary and all that stuff. So he takes a K1 distribution, but he also has like a W2 a little bit in there. So the banks will use those kind of documents as a reliable income. I wanted to talk about that because a lot of people may not have their own money to buy a deal. And so a common recommendation in the real estate world is to get a partner. And they think, well, I don't know anybody that I can partner with and or I don't have any money or why would anybody want to partner with me? And one of the things I always recommend is if you have a W-2 job, you are super valuable to somebody else who may not. You might be able to be their... They call it their W-2 partner because you're the one that's going to provide the reliable, verifiable income to get financing for somebody who might have cash that wants to invest in a deal but doesn't have the W-2 financing available to them. So I think I wanted to talk about that piece because I think that's important for people to understand is that maybe you don't have all the money or all the answers, but if you have a W-2 income, you could potentially bring that to a partner and use that as value to get a first partnership. Yeah, that's actually what I do. I have we've raised a lot of money over the last year and not a lot, but a little bit. And we exactly do what you just mentioned. Like I would throw a loan on somebody else 
lead my sister, my brother-in-law, my buddies, and they all have their own. And I just go on title. How do you and Drew structure your partnerships from a legal and profit perspective? How about the perspective of different responsibilities? How do you split that? So since I super nerd about these things and there's different ways to do it, right? So there's only very few ways to do it. One is you could be a lender. So you become a debt partner. You don't like that. You could do that, but there's no upside for the people who give you money because you just uh, get a debt on the property. The second one is you could be an equity partner, which is our preferred method. So how we do the deal is, let's say, I'll give you a simple example. When the money is lower, there's not too much money involved. Let's say it's a $100,000 property and you and I go in on the deal. So you give me $25,000 to buy the property, you get half the deal. And then we just give you a percent on the money you invested. So, but we don't call you an investor, we call you a partner. Because if you do call the person an investor, they are protected by SEC guidelines and it's all kinds of problems. We say they're equity partners. So you can either drop a TIC, which is the tenants in common agreement, or you could do a JV. That's how we've been doing. But the ideal way of doing it is you create LLCs and you partner with people. But a lot of people get stuck in this thing like, oh, do we need LLCs? I know for a lot of people talk about, oh, I'm going to start an LLC. But I'm like, bro, like you're worth like garbage. Your car is leased and you live with your mom. Like you don't need an LLC. You're worth nothing. Like who's going to take what from you? You don't have anything to your name, right? So it doesn't matter like to have LLCs. Even if you're getting a first property, technically you don't need an LLC because if it's an inside attack, like inside the property, you're still going to lose the property. Even if you have the LLC, the LLC is for your other assets, but you don't have any other assets. So you don't need an LLC. So you could just go buy it in your name. And eventually if you have like 20 doors, sure, you can have LLCs. Yeah. Having an LLC is a huge misconception that new investors have. I know I had that misconception when I first got started. When I first got into real estate, I said, I also have a business partner. His name's Ryan. And I told him, I said, Ryan, we're never buying a deal unless it's in an LLC. And this is because I didn't know any better. We had a little bit of assets. Neither of us are rich by any means, but we had some assets, but it really wasn't even for that. It was just, I thought I was misinformed that you had to have an LLC to invest. And so we formed an LLC, we did all that, and then we went to go buy the property and nobody would lend to us in an LLC because it was less than four units. And so we realized that we couldn't do that. And thank God I had the podcast and I was able to talk to some guests that I've had and I was able to network with them and find out what should I do. And I learned from all these successful investors, they said, listen, you can just get an umbrella insurance policy that's pretty cheap for like a million or $2 million in general liability insurance. And it's really not that expensive. And it'll essentially give you the same protection that the LLC was. So what we did is we ended up buying the property in our personal names, and we just ended up getting insurance to cover the liability instead of going the LLC route. Yeah, that's smart. That's how you're really supposed to do. And people listening, this might be a good point for them to see. When you talk about residential real estate, which is one, two, three, four units, no one will lend to you in an LLC. So what you would have to do is like Robert just mentioned is, you would have to close in your name and you could grant deed it over into an LLC after you close. If you choose to, you could throw it in a trust and hide it. There's different ways to do it, but you have to always close in your own name. But once you go five units, yeah, you could close in LLCs. And that's only for a traditional lender though. You can find other lenders that will do it. So I have three properties that I'm buying right now. They're all single family and we're using an LLC. But we're not using a traditional Fannie Freddie loan provider. We're using a portfolio lender who's lending their own money. So we're able to get different terms and they'll lend to an LLC. But for the general public, like I'd say 90, 95% of 
financial institutions will not lend to an LLC, just like you said, for under four units or under five units. Yeah, once you go like portfolio or like even some credit unions, they might be willing to work with you. But assume you pay a point more than regular rates, right? Yeah. So the interest rate isn't as good. The term on the loan isn't as good. And it's a 5-1 arm, I believe, or maybe a 7-1 arm. So it's not a 30-year fix like you would get. So traditional financing is much better. You get a 30-year fixed rate. You don't have to do anything for 30 years. Typically, it's a lot lower interest rate. When you go portfolio lending, the term, we're only able to get 20 years instead of 30 years. And it's an amortization over 20 years, but it's still a 5-1 arm. So it comes fully due after 5 years. So we'll have to refinance. And the interest rate's a little bit higher. So the terms of the financing are not as good, but it's definitely an option. Yeah. I would say it's definitely for complicated, like more complex people like you who've done a few deals. Like Definitely don't recommend it for the first time buyer. I agree. And the only reason that we're even doing this is because they will lend to an LLC and we're going to start bringing in partners to invest in our deals and they're going to be partners in the LLC. So that's just going to make it easier for us to get deals rather than doing it in our personal names and having to have the investor have their personal name in the deal as well. You and Drew focus on buying two and three unit apartment buildings in California and you've moved to Atlanta as well now, but why do you focus on two and three unit buildings? So, you know, like we didn't know how to do big deals and just worry. Like, I don't know. I still don't have a five unit, right? Or even a four unit. It's mostly just duplexes and triplexes, actually, all of it. So, we wanted to have the best of both worlds, right? So, which is the cheapest loan possible, Freddie guidelines. And we wanted to cash flow still a little bit. So, not single family, but not five units. So, we picked the one in the middle, which will give you a little bit of the cash flow with the cheapest loans possible. That's why we picked those. A lot of people that listen to the show reach out to me and ask how they can invest in expensive markets. California is one of them, but there's other markets across the world really that people reach out to me, some in Canada, some in other markets. California is generally really expensive. How are you able to invest in such an expensive market successfully? So I live in Orange County. Do I invest in Orange County? Heck no. No chance. The cap rates are like three here, right? So which means if you buy something for hundred dollars of cash. After all your expenses, you make $3 back, maybe two and a half, three, right? So that's not a good investment. But I go more inland. I buy all of my units are mostly in Bakersfield, California. So that's a little bit of a desert town. It's between Fresno and LA. So that's a different area where you can actually cash flow. So that's where I buy them. How has your experience been investing in a state where the laws tend to favor tenants more than the landlords? Yeah, I'm not a big fan, dude. I'm not uh, paying out. Let's say, let's give the listeners an idea. Like, let's say you own a car, right? And then I decide to park the car outside. And then you come in the morning, there's 10 homeless guys living in the car. And then you call the cops, and the cops say, well, you got to file a petition to get them out of the car, but you have to go to work. That's California. If you buy a house and somebody just moves in there at night, it's over for you. Now you have to evict them. They have laws to protect them and stuff, right? So it's like, so who owns the house? Do you own the house or the guy who just walked into the house own it, right? If the laws are protecting him more than us, right? It's not a favorable situation. I always see like, okay, what are you going to do? Are you going to just complain and not do anything and be like, now you're poor? You just have to work with the system. I try to work with people, use management. Like I bought a property recently. I'll talk about it quick. It's the duplex we bought from a mom and pop guy in Lake Street. 
And it is poorly managed and the tenants are not paying rent. They're not going out. It's in the middle of the pandemic. And I decided to buy this property with cash, right? Terrible idea, you could say. So I go there and I say, I work for the owners. They're reasonable people. And, you know, we want to help you and all that stuff. So I just work out a deal with them. I said, you know what? Stay here for four more weeks for free. You don't have to pay us rent for my owners. Which I'm the owner, but I tell them I'll talk to the owners. We'll give you four weeks to move out and I'll give you $1,000 cash when you move out. Just sign in this document and we're good. So they said, yeah, that sounds great. So they signed the document. Four weeks later, they were gone. I gave them $1,000 each cash and they're gone. And now it's completely renovated and it's rented out to two new people who are paying rent. So if you spend the time to work, this is the system. You just have to figure out a way to maneuver it. That's why I never understand when people are like super pro either one side in the political system. But I'm like, dude, what are you doing about it? Like, are you buying assets or are you just talking about it? That's most people I know. They're just one way or the other, but they don't do anything. Is California blue state? Yeah, sure. They're very tenant friendly. They try to help the tenants, but you still have to play the game. You can't win if you don't play, right? So I always like to figure out what is happening. I follow all the laws, whoever's elected. I don't mind. I just work with it, trying to make it work for us as investors. You mentioned an interesting concept that I want to talk about a little bit more because I think it's a somewhat polarizing idea. I've read online, whether it be bigger pockets or some Facebook groups or just other real estate resources that some people believe in using this strategy and other people think it's completely unethical. What you mentioned is that you don't tell them that you're the owner. You act as if you work for the owner. How do you think about this for the people that think it's unethical to do that? Here's my question, right? Why does the tenant have to know who owns it other than for harassing the owners? What is their point? If they want to get the light fixed, they have access to my property manager. They could just call Chelsea and be like, hey, can you come fix this? And somebody will be there in 24 hours. What is the reason for them to actually talk to me? There is no reason. And do I actually own it or do my LLC own it, right? So I could play that game too. Maybe I don't own it. Maybe Only Holdings LLC owns that house. And I'm a mere manager in that LLC, which is what I tell them. I am a manager for the owners, which is my business entity. So there are ways around it. And I have literally zero conundrums or things about, oh, I'm not revealing who I am because they're getting a good place to stay. And it's taken care of by a third-party management company. And I am literally a third person. Like I am not directly involved. I just go in if things are not working. So if I have to take care of it, I'm willing to go. Why did you decide to expand to Atlanta from California? So my super cool sister and my sister's family, they live in north of Atlanta. So they are in Alpharetta area. And I've been visiting Atlanta for a long time. And I do like the area. I do market research. And a lot of people are moving to that state. So I like the greater Atlanta area. And I do want to get out of California just to have a different perspective, see how the appreciation plays in a different market than just Bakersfield, California. The cash flow is good, but the appreciation is not that good. So I just recently bought a duplex in Stone Mountain, Georgia, which is just outside of Atlanta. I mean, if you want to talk about that, I can talk about that, how I raised money. That might be very useful for people to see things you could actually achieve by just going to a meetup. Yeah, that was actually exactly going to be my next question was, how much money have you and Drew raised for your deals? And how did you actually raise that money? So far, we've raised about half a million dollars of other people's cash. And most of it just came from during the pandemic. 
So for this property, we are talking about the Stone Mountain, Georgia. I remember maybe a year and a half ago, I went to this meetup in Newport Beach. I think it was kind of through bigger pockets. These guys running some meetup and I went there. And I saw this group of people were talking about different things, ask questions and somebody will answer. A lot of people were asking just like not smart questions, man. It was just like, doesn't make any sense. So I was just getting annoyed. I'll respond to those questions, but like in a funny way, I'm like, how many LLCs do I need? And I'm like, bro, you make 30,000 in Walmart and you have a cycle, like you don't need LLCs at all. So people saw me answering these questions, but it'll be like to the point. And there's this one guy called Alan. And I didn't even talk to this guy because this guy was a baller. He had like millions of dollars of real estate, but I didn't even talk to him because I was just saying hi to people and want to push anything. But he contacted me through Bigger Park and said, Hey, do you want to go get coffee? So we started hanging out and I took him to Baker School. I showed some of the properties. I kept in touch. So I'll invite him to events and stuff, right? Just a guy I met online, but a very nice guy. So he actually gave me the entire money to go buy this duplex in Stone Mountain, Georgia. So we bought it from off-market deal. So it costs about 170 cash and we will split everything 50-50. So it just shows that if you take the time to develop relationships and if you're knowledgeable about something you talk about, people do notice it. And then they do, they will give you their money because they know what you're talking about, right? So we're actually finishing up the rehab right now in Stone Mountain. I'm kind of overseeing it. So when I go to Atlanta, I go meet all these people, contractors, realtors, wholesalers, off-market deals, handyman, property management. So I have all these teams set up in Atlanta. So I'm working with those guys. I'm going to be buying another duplex for my sister there too. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. 
The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. We talked a bit about the partnership structure between you and Drew. How do you structure it with your investors? Great question. So super simple is if, let's say, you're doing duplex, triplex, you know, fourplex kind of deals. Drew and I keep 50% of the deal. And the partners who we bring in keep 50% of the deal, but they put in the down payment. So it's like usually 20 to 25%. And Drew and I, we kind of like do all the work, but we do still keep you as a partner. We don't call you as an investor. So we could technically on paper, you can pick the color of the paint, but would you ever pick that? Probably not. But you do have the same, right? Because you're just an equal partners as we do all the work. And we just give you like a straight return on your money. So if you invested like a hundred thousand, you're going to get six thousand dollars a year, and we distribute monthly, and you get half ownership of the tax returns. So it gets a little bit complicated if you want to go into the details because on your 1099, you're going to claim half the rents that came in as your income, but that's not the money you get because I pay all the mortgages and the management and all that stuff. But for tax purposes, that's how it works. So are they getting a K-1 or a 1099? They get a 1099 because K-1s are not worth it for me, for these guys, because like I said, if I'm creating a partnership 1065 tax return for my duplexes, which makes $7 every eight days, it's going to be a nightmare because it costs me $1,200 to do a K-1 just for myself and Drew. And if I have seven partners, it'll cost me $1,200 per partner. It's not worth it for sure. So how are you legally allowed to give them a 1099? You could do that. So, because it's just a business, right? So, my property manager gives me a 1099, let's say for $100,000. Let's say I have a duplex with you and that duplex made $20,000. You're claiming half of the duplex's expenses. I'm going to give you a 1099 for $10,000 for half of that income. Now, are you paying income tax on the $10,000? Heck no. You know that real estate, we don't pay income tax on it because you're going to claim all the depreciation, all that stuff. So I'll just look at that property because I have a third-party property management. They use Appfolio. It just tells you exactly how much that property made. Whatever the, your ownership is, let's say the property made $100 and your ownership is 100%, you're getting a 1099 for $100 if that property made $100. And then so on my tax returns, it will show that I got $100,000 coming in, but I paid out. $80,000 to all my investors. So I'm only on the line for $20,000. So my remaining houses, I'm able to just offset that income from all the other assets I have. So you're buying the property in an LLC and then their investors are getting... Everybody that owns part of the property is getting a 1099 for the percent ownership that they have of the rental income. And then they get a different form for expenses and that's how they write off the expenses? Yeah. So I will actually give them the property manager that they have the generate expense reports and stuff. So I'll just copy up the whole thing. They could see my whole portfolio if they want. But So that's how it works. I don't actually buy the property in the LLC. I am slowly moving some of my assets into LLCs. I have a couple of LLCs, but I do buy them. So let's say if you and I bought the property and I'm like, dude, I don't want to do this loan. Can you do the loan? So it'll be on Robert Leonard. You will have the title and that's how we'll buy the property. And then we can move it out of it 
you could put it in a trust and change the beneficial interest to an LLC. Do you want to kind of offset the do you want sale clause? I'm currently buying deals during the pandemic. I'm actually buying probably more than I ever have before. And I know you are too. Why are you continuing to invest during a global pandemic? Why is now still a good time for people to invest in real estate? That's a good question. A lot of people ask that. So actually, you know, interesting story for me is I've been in this game for three years. And before the, just when the pandemic started, I've had five units and $400,000 of assets. That's all I had. Now I have two and a half million dollars. So I bought over $2 million of assets or 20 doors just in the pandemic, during the pandemic, when everybody told me, don't do it. That's the exact reason I did it because everybody said, don't do it. And they don't have any assets. So my question is, let's say I lose all of these houses. I am still better off than the people who don't buy anything. Going back to zero is the same. If I even if I lost half, I will still be better than people who don't buy anything, right? So they say like, oh, I want to wait for the market to dip and then I can come in. But I'm like, the market to dip? What are you talking about? Like, if the market dips, like, how are you going to know what to do? You've never bought any asset in your entire life. I constantly buy Robert constantly buys, Brandon Turner constantly buys. You think you're going to compete with Brandon Turner and Robert Leonard when you haven't played the game in 35 years of your life? There is no chance you're going to get in the game because Robert is going to pay cash and buy it. You won't even see the deal. <laughs> They're waiting on sitting on MLS. They're like, oh, I'm going to buy this duplex. Like, nope. Actually, Robert sent a direct mail and he's in the house right now signing the deal. It's over. You won't even see the game. That's why you always have to be in it to understand, right? It's like working out. It's like, I'm going to start working out January 1st. You know, it's over for the guy. He's never going in January 1st. Yeah. So when it comes to goals and goal setting, I never set a date like that. I always make sure I just I start right then. As soon as I think of the goal, I start right then. Around November, December, people start to think of their New Year's resolutions. And I never wait till January 1st to start. I always start... If I have goals I'm working on, when I finish those goals, then I'll get to the next goal. I don't wait for a specific... I don't wait till Monday or... Tuesday or whatever, these arbitrary dates that a lot of people wait for. But what I really like that you mentioned is that if you don't buy now and you have no experience, you're not going to buy in bad times. And that was the biggest thing for me because I was that person that wasn't buying deals because I always sat on the sidelines. I said, I'm going to wait for a correction. I'm going to wait for a correction. I'm going to wait for a correction. And then I learned from Brandon Turner that he just taught me something that really lit a light in my head, I guess you could say, is that if you're not buying when things are good, when times are good, money's easy to come by, everything is great. What makes you think you're actually going to pull the trigger when something is bad? What makes you think you're going to have the experience or be able to find money or be able to finance a property when things are crumbling around you? You have to be able to have some experience when times are good and have some experience under your belt so that you're ready to invest when times are bad. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point, man. Like, I don't want people to misunderstand us. Like, you still have to do the numbers. You still have to know what's a good deal and what's not a good deal. So, you know, you could play small and try to buy like a comfortable number. But like last year when we were picking up deals and I was buying deals, now people who are waiting to for the market to dip, it's gone up 15%. It's over. Like you already lost. Now what are they doing? They're like, oh, whoa, it's gone up 15%. I gotta wait. It's not gonna be working out in your favor. Like it's just bad news. You know, you're not leveraging other people's money. It's just there's nothing. People who don't own assets in the US are getting screwed, man, left and right. You know, it's it never works out for them. Like even if you take, let's say you're taking money from the government, you're getting unemployed every month, right? 
it's not really serving you anything. Like they're printing so much money, they're giving it to you. What are you doing with the money, right? You're giving it to me. Like you're giving it to Robert. Like we own assets. You're gonna we're gonna increase the rents. Like it's always gonna work out in our favor. You are never gonna win. You're always gonna lose. Doesn't matter. When you go to the store, we'll give you a thousand bucks every month, free money. The eggs are now fifteen dollars. It's not five dollars. And who owns the eggs? Well, Robert owns the grocery store. Oh, okay, great. He's depreciating the grocery store and he's writing up the expenses and you're going to pay more for the eggs. Like, there's no way. You have to own assets in this country. Otherwise, you're going to get screwed. And you mentioned the most important thing that I talk about all the time, the numbers have to make sense. I said I'm buying more right now than ever before, which is true. And I think now or anytime is always the right time to buy a deal, but the numbers have to make sense. You can't just buy a bad deal to buy a deal. But if the numbers are great, it's always a good time to buy a deal. And it's kind of crazy for me to even talk about this because I never thought about that before. I always thought I could time the market. I always wanted to buy at the lowest of the low. But now I just realized it's so much more important. If the numbers make sense, it's always the right time to buy a good deal. Yeah. You have an interesting perspective because I know you also have another podcast for stocks, right? Yeah. So you have the perspective of the stock game and the real estate. I am like super techno with stocks. I do have stocks because I work for a company, like a lot of stocks, but it's like one particular company stock and it's on the OTC market. But I do have like a little bit 401k and like some around maybe 20,000, not too much, but I am like not into stocks because a lot of the people, even people who I talk to, they're like, whoa, stocks versus real estate. I'm like, stocks versus real estate, dude, you're not even in the same room as me. They're like, but let's see who does more. I'm like, who does more? I'm using my sister's quarter million dollar cash. I'm getting infinite gains. Like, can you borrow money from your mom to invest to buy Microsoft stock? No. So you already lost. Like, it doesn't matter, right? I'm not even using my money to generate wealth anymore. So it's like, you can't compete with someone who raises money. They're always going to win. Yeah. I think there's room for it. both. I think both asset classes have their place in someone's portfolio. If somebody doesn't like stocks, though, they don't have to have exposure. But I personally like to have a little bit of exposure to both things in my portfolio. And I'm leaning more towards real estate these days than stocks, but I definitely still have stock exposure and I probably will forever. I mean, there are some tax advantaged accounts, right? Like, for example, you know, my company matches a little bit. So if they're matching, you know, 1%, I'll be stupid not to put 1% to get the free money, right? That's basically number one. Your tax brackets are higher. You're paying 50% taxes. You might want to contribute some into 401ks. I definitely like ROTs. That's awesome. You can own assets. You can buy houses from an LLC, which is owned by a ROT. That's interesting. So that goes tax-free. Any money you generate from the rental property that's inside your ROT doesn't pay taxes forever. That is just crazy. So those kind of things you can't beat, like, like for sure. You have to look into those things. Which types of resources have been most helpful and influential for you as you've grown as an investor? What have been the most important things that you've learned from those resources? I would say number one is audiobooks for me. I read and regular books too. It goes from super nerdy to a little bit nerdy. So I do read a lot of books, like dozens and dozens of books. So that was my number one resource. It kind of helps me think differently. I would have never thought like Robert Kiyosaki and Rich Dad. Like I could have gone my whole life thinking I'm a genius. I'm making $110,000. What a great person I am. Useless. Like literally wasted my whole life. But you read this one book and it's like, wow, I'm just the biggest idiot I know. Like this is crazy. And another thing I really, really started enjoying was podcasts like you, Axel's 
multifamily wealth are like that, you know, Robert Cleef and Bigger Pockets, all these guys. It's so valuable and it's just, it's free. Like, what are you doing? Like, are you listening to radio? Like, I was so sad that I was listening to radio when I was going to work and I commute an hour every day. I was like, wow, I spent a year listening to the next song Katy Perry released. Like, wow, that's just crazy. So you have so much stuff nowadays that you have access to so much information. There's literally no excuse you could give yourself anymore. It's just crazy. Yeah, I completely agree. I think for me, one of the biggest has had an impact on my success is from turning my car rides and my commutes into a mobile classroom. And it doesn't cost a lot of money to buy audiobooks. Podcasts are free. So you can learn a ton of information rather than wasting that time listening to music in the car. You can use that time to get educated and you kind of kill two birds with one stone because you're doing your commute anyway and you're able to learn. And so for me, for a while, I was commuting an hour one way to work and an hour home. So I had two hours a day where I was just wasting time where instead I could start using it to learn and use educational resources. And I think for me, that's probably had one of the biggest impacts on my life and my success. Yeah, I mean, that's really good. And it means something. I'm a musician. I I play in a couple of bands and I'm saying listening to music is a waste of time all the time, right? I create music and I play music. I love playing piano and stuff, but Still, one hour a day, just you know, back and forth. You got to start putting something in your brain. That's important, I think. And another thing you could add to this is definitely the kind of people you hang out with. After reading all these books and stuff, I don't even hang out with like the people I used to hang out. I just tell them no, like it's a waste of my time. Like I wouldn't. I want to be like biggest loser in the gang I'm hanging out because then I'm learning from these guys. If I'm like a rock star in the gang, I'm not learning anything. So you want to hang out with your high school buddies, maybe give them every third Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m. That's it. They can't be coming to your house every day and talking about the latest Bachelor episode. That's the waste of your time. I've done that as well. My circle has gotten a lot, lot smaller over the last couple of years. And it's hard to quantify what impact that has had on me, but I know it's been a big one. I know it's been a big focus for me. So I completely agree with that as well. Vince, Thanks for joining me on the show today. For those listening that are interested in learning more about your journey and want to connect with you, where's the best place for them to go? You can DM us on Instagram or you can go to our website. It's the same. It's on the invest. So it's an A-N as in Andrew and then V-I as in Vince. So A-N-V-I invest, one word. So you could do .com. You can go to our website. Show us like the stuff we've been working on, portfolio and stuff. And if you go to... The Instagram, you can always talk to us. We also do some consulting if people want to know how to get into that and stuff. I'll be sure to put a link to Vince's resources below in the show notes. If you guys are interested, you can check that out there. Vince, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, sir. Nice chatting with you. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.